The world that we live in is filled with chaos. We are all searching for meaning in our lives, but we often get lost along the way. We all must ultimately realize that meaning is found in responsibility for our actions, for the way we live our life, and for the people in our lives. We don't have to stay in the chaos. We can choose to bring order to our lives. Join us for a fresh perspective on the practical steps we can take to become who God intended us to be and to realize what our calling is. This is Coming Out of Chaos. Welcome back to the Coming Out of Chaos podcast, coming to you from the upper room at St. Nicholas Orthodox Church in Springdale, Arkansas. My name is Michael Bocklig. I am your host, and I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host Bryce Kirk. Bryce, how has life been going for you lately? Well, Michael, um, things have been going well, getting ready to defend my thesis here in a couple weeks. Obviously, we're on our way through the great fast. Uh, is right around the corner, so there's a lot to be looking forward to. Definitely. And we have a very special podcast episode planned this time. We're actually going to have two guests join us today for this episode. We've done that once before, but this time we are joined by Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Father Stephen DeYoung. Both priests are from our Antiochian Archdiocese. Father Andrew is the Chief Content Officer at Ancient Faith Ministries, and Father Stephen DeYoung is the pastor of a church in our diocese, the Diocese of Miami in the Southeast. I should mention that Father Andrew is originally from our diocese, so hopefully they will both feel right at home on this podcast. Father Andrew and Father Stephen are co-hosts of the very popular podcast, The Lord of Spirits on Ancient Faith Radio. And it is an honor and a blessing to have both of them on with us today. Father Stephen DeYoung has also been gracious enough to host a men's Bible study with the Antiochian men in our diocese for the last two and a half years and running. We record those Bible studies and they are all available on our Amen YouTube channel if anyone is interested in watching them. We started recording those Bible studies with the story of King David and are now going through the story of the life of Abraham in the Old Testament. Father Andrew and Father Stephen, I want to thank you both very much for taking the time out of your very busy schedules to join us today. Could you each start out by briefly introducing yourselves? Father Andrew, would you mind starting out? And then we can go to Father Stephen. So um, in addition to what you already mentioned, I live in Emmaus, Pennsylvania, where I am attached at the Church of St. Paul. Uh, I'm married. I have four kids, and I was ordained to the priesthood in 2006. And uh, I'm the pastor of Archangel Gabriel Orthodox Church in Lafayette, Louisiana, and I've got a PhD in biblical studies. I'm a gold medal winning ballroom dancer, and I'm engaged in a lifelong blood feud with James Earl Jones. Oh, wow. (laughs) It's true. Well, that's good to know. I have to hold him back on a regular basis. I was going to make a false doom comment from Conan, Father, but I will refrain. Um, So, Michael and I are very excited to be doing this podcast episode with both of you, and we were hoping to have a QA and a with you on a few different topics. So I'll start with you, Father Andrew. The Lord of Spirits podcast has become a huge success, and it has captivated the attention of so many people, both Orthodox and non-Orthodox. We even have had inquirers coming to our local parish who discovered orthodoxy by listening to the Lord of Spirits. Why do you think that your podcast has become so popular so quickly? It's a good question. And um, I actually get asked this on a regular basis, and I think about it on a regular basis. 
Um, so my theory is this, that number one, we're filling a space that was not otherwise being filled, especially within the Orthodox world. Um, but, but I think the bigger reason is that the last couple of years has seen the sense of disenchantment that a lot of people are experiencing accelerate considerably, right? I mean, we live in a world that's mostly dominated by a, a materialistic understanding of the world. Um, and so that this has been happening now for centuries that this has been developing. But I think that particularly the last couple of years that it really accelerated because of the pandemic, where um, my own take is that sort of the last kind of enchantment that most people experienced, which was simply the enchantment of human beings being together, that even then that was taken away much of the time. And so then the hunger for it became even greater. And so when we started the show, which was in um, in September of 2020, so now we're, we're about a year and a half old, um, that was right when a lot of those lockdowns and stuff were just extending and extending and, and people kind of didn't know what was in the future. And so we we openly talked about the show as being about the connection of the seen and the unseen world. And we're looking specifically at the Holy scriptures in light of Orthodox tradition. And so I, I believe that this, the, the hunger for, um, for trying to connect with the world that we, I think as human beings intuitively know is there, but that we've had very strong cultural and intellectual blinders put on us for a long time, that, that, that just became much more pronounced. And so we just hit a sweet spot um, not really on purpose. Like it wasn't like, oh, well, everybody's experiencing disenchantment. Let's do a t let's do a, a radio show about the Bible and about giants and dragons and stuff. Um, but but rather it just it just sort of hit, you know, by, by God's grace at, at just sort of the right time. And uh, it's continued to grow from there. And I think that right now we're we estimate we have somewhere between 14, 15,000 monthly listeners or something like that. Where it's it's really hard to count, actually, uh, based on the kind of data that we have. But I mean, that's that's kind of our best guess at this point. Yeah, I think uh, a persistent problem that we faced is that Christianity itself has sort of been secularized in the West and especially in the United States. Um, in the United States, it's a little worse because in addition to being sort of secularized, it's been sort of commoditized uh, in terms of marketing and, and uh, consumerism. So uh, that's been really hard to do to the Orthodox Church, maybe harder than some other uh, Christian communities, because the the more the spiritual is sort of more on the uh, on the face more out in the open in the orthodox church it's there in the liturgy it's there in the other services it's there in our hymnography it's there in the writings of the saints the lives of the saints and so um, the orthodox church has maybe resisted a little better than than a lot of groups but an Orthodox Christian living in the United States or, or in Western Europe is still spending a small minority of their time exposed to that and the majority of their time out in a world that's completely secularized and commoditized. And so that just sort of creates a weird imbalance or contradiction that then people try to navigate. And so we get this whole discourse of faith as belief. Well, I still believe these things are true 
even though in most of my life they don't seem to be true versus, well, they don't seem to be true in most of my life. So now I'm doubting them in the church, right? On the other side. And uh, I think, as Father Andrew was saying, that kind of reached a crisis point when the pandemic started and people were looking for that more. They were looking for those answers. And what had become of Christianity, that secularized, commoditized version, was completely unsatisfactory and had no answers, you know, mm. when, when the chips were sort of actually down. And so um, I think even if that hadn't happened, I think there would have been an audience uh, for, for what we're doing in the sense that uh, giving people that more. And the, the biggest comment we get on and on and on is people listen to an episode and then go to a service and something in a hymn all of a sudden or something in a scripture reading like jumps out at them and they're like, Oh, what, wait, what, Whoa. (laughs) It sort of of clicks, you know? Um, So it's not just a general impression that there's something more, but they start to, to make those connections. But I think the pandemic and everything sort of, because it exacerbated the problem, drove more people to look for, for answers and for a solution. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Father. And I can relate to what you were just saying, because we've been reading a lot of the Psalms during Great Lent. And as I've been reading them and and hearing them read, I feel like I have 3D glasses on now, where before it was just in 2D or something, just listening to what both of you have been talking about. The Psalms are jumping out in a way that they hadn't been before. And, And really all of Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, things that I just hadn't paid attention to. And, you know, I've listened to every single podcast of yours of the Lord of Spirits, and I have even called in once. I wish I've called in more. Maybe I'll have an opportunity to call in again soon. But there is a question I have been dying to ask both of you. So I'll go to that question now, and I'll start with you, Father Stephen. Both of you have talked a lot about angels and demons in the Lord of Spirits. And in Scripture, whenever an angel appears to a human on earth, the angel always appears as a man. Since angels are neither male nor female, is there something we as men should take away from the fact that angels always appear in a masculine form? Well, it's not, it's not always. I mean, sometimes it's a wheel with eyes and sometimes it's, <laughs> you know, a uh, six winged <laughs> uh, seraphim. But that's true. It, it, uh, it, I don't even know if a majority of cases, but in, in many cases, <laughs> that's, that is true. And that's as opposed to, Right, we don't see angelic beings uh, appearing in feminine forms. Right, right. Um, in the in the scriptures, um, and that's not because obviously uh, angelic beings have biological sex. Right, because we know that they don't. They don't reproduce the way biological organisms reproduce. Uh, so we're not we're not talking about biological sex in that sense. But as as we've talked about several times on the show, sort of the purpose for which humanity was created is to continue the work of God in putting creation in order and filling it with life. And men and women each sort of have a a a, uh, a side of that that they major in, <laughs> right? And then uh, the other participates, right? So. Uh, women bring life into the world, not just literally in terms of human reproduction, but in in spiritual and other ways as well. And men obviously have a part to play in that. They participate in that. Women don't do it by themselves. 
Um, and the other side of that equation then is that men sort of major in putting creation in order. And they don't do that by themselves. Women participate in that as well. Right. Uh, and so given that angelic beings are, are part of the sort of divine order, right, of creation, that they are in, in a hierarchy related to the elements of creation, overseeing it, administering God's justice, then their expression gender-wise, it makes sense for that to be masculine because that's sort of the role that they're taking, mm. right, in, in what they do. That would be my answer to that question. Yeah, the only thing that I would I would add to that is, um, which I love that answer, uh, but the only thing that I would add to that is that like iconographically, when angels are depicted as humans, um, they're not depicted as as bearded. Um, I, I've never seen a bearded angel in an icon. Um, maybe that exists. I don't know. But I but they're always depicted as as as, as for instance the way they're described in the New Testament is as young men. So they're beardless typically. And my understanding is that iconographically, that part of that is to express the other side of this, which is to say that even though there is often this kind of male presentation to angels um, as we interact with them, that they still do not have biological sex. Like they're still not male, right? Just as they're not female, that the idea is that they, they have neither. And so that's why they're depicted not as having sort of the kind of traits that we would sort of strongly associate with maleness, like for instance, having beards uh, as an mm. example. Uh, I, I, I can't say whether or not they have Adam's apples. Um, it's hard to tell. <laughs> Depends on the icon, I guess. Uh, but, uh, but, but that's, that's the only thing that I would add. All right. Well, thank you. That was very enlightening. Um, that's not something I really have ever put a whole lot of thought into, but as many of us have listened to Lord of Spirits, being able to kind of be enlightened a little bit more in terms of the context of a lot of events that have happened in both the Old and New Testament. I think that's really insightful. So Father Andrew, I do have another question for you. So at the beginning of every Lord of Spirits podcast episode, there's an intro that says in part that in our time, many yearn to break free of the prison of a flat secular materialism. Recently, I had Father Michael Marcantoni and Father Joseph Collins from the On the Battlefield podcast as guests. In that podcast episode, Father Michael brought up something that I was hoping we could explore further with you. I'm going to quote what he said. Feelings ultimately are material. An overemphasis on sentimentality leads us into a very deep materialism. How are feelings material? Feelings and emotions are either chemical reactions within your system or electrical firings within your neural synapses. All of that can be manipulated by the amount of stimuli around you. So when that is driving your spiritual output, you have no choice but to be intensely materialistic because your state is passive and you are reacting to things and then you are mastered by things and all of that slavery, and it really is slavery, to these material things that then yank us around through our overdependence on them create this big connection between our sentimentality and materialism. If you are overly sentimental, you are forced to be a slave to material things that drive your sentimental impulses. I think that this concept of feelings being material and over-sentimentality leading us into a very deep materialism is truly rampant in our culture today. Our spiritual advisor to the Antiochian men is Father Hans Jacobsy. He has said that the heresy of our age is, you are what you feel. 
What is your perspective on people's feelings leading them into becoming more and more materialistic? And what is the key to breaking free from this kind of slavery to material things? That's a good question. Um, First, I think I would disagree somewhat with the idea that feelings are, and I know this is not what was said, but I'm going to disagree with the idea that feelings are exclusively material um, phenomena, right? And, And I think that's because the way that we experience feelings has a lot more complexity and subtlety to it than can be simply observed in chemical reactions, you know, within the human body. And I'll give you an example, for instance, just yesterday, I discovered that a great uncle of mine whom I had never met, whom I had been trying to sort of track down through genealogical research, I just discovered yesterday that he died three weeks ago. And I, I wasn't sure whether he was living or dead. In fact, a week ago, I had said to my wife, you know, I've, I've been trying to learn about some of my relatives and uh, this one, I don't know if he's even alive or dead. And then I just found out, like I said yesterday, that he had died. And the feeling that I had was not the feeling that you have when someone you know has died, but I still experienced a feeling of loss nonetheless. Now, again, this is someone that I'd never met. Mm. This is my grandmother's brother. Um, I don't think he's been in touch with my side of the family in you know 50 years, right? Um And could I explain the difference between the feeling of loss when someone you know has died versus the feeling of loss when someone that you might have known or should have known has died, right? Now, it's a much less intense kind of feeling right? because I don't feel the sense of like, oh, they were here and now they're gone. But it was a sense of like almost like an opportunity cost loss, if that makes sense. Like I could have known him. I wish I had known him, but now I can't know him. Right. And I think that that level of complexity um, requires. There's a whole sort of matrix there of things that are not just chemical. Some of it is interpretive. Right. Like, why is it that I feel a sense of loss, even though I didn't know him? Well, then I interpret it this way. Right. So there's there's other elements going along uh, along with that. Um, So I think that that the to, to answer the question of not becoming a slave to materialistic things and and even becoming a slave to uh, emotions, no matter how you understand where emotions come from and what they really mean is part, part of it is restoring a broader framework within which to understand our actual experiences, right? We tend to, we tend to frame most of our experiences in materialistic terms, right? Or we flip it and, and have no sort of explanation that has anything to do with like, well, that's all just in your head. For instance, you know, uh, we often feel that way about people's illnesses. Uh, that's just all in your head because like the doctor can't find anything wrong with you. And yet they say I'm experiencing pain. They say I'm experiencing whatever it might be. Right. So, so we flip back and forth like this is just pure imagination or, you know, well, th- this can be taken care of with a pill. Right. And part of what we try to do on Lord of Spirits is to help people begin to have a framework. I mean, you can't just sort of flip a switch and think differently, right? But at least begin to have a framework in which the way that we interpret things is in a greater alignment with uh, what we can learn from scriptures, what we can learn from Orthodox tradition. Uh, A great example, for instance, we've talked about the noose a number of times on on the show. And if you read what the church fathers say, the noose is treated like a sensory organ, right? And if you understand that idea that the noose is something that receives thoughts and that thoughts come from the spiritual world primarily, 
then when you read scripture talking about having the mind of Christ, or you 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 read the scripture talking about uh, having the renewing of your mind, then that gives you a di- very different framework than the sort of purely psychological one that a lot of us experience it on, which is to say, well, I just keep having these thoughts. There must be something wrong with me, right? Where we have this understanding that thoughts are purely internally generated. Whereas the patristic understanding, the liturgical, the scriptural understanding about thoughts is that they're not necessarily internally generated, that a lot of them are coming from the outside, whether it's other spiritual beings or you're just observing things, whatever, and that your mind is actually a a receptive organ rather than a sort of a computer in a box, right? That's just one example of how um, a fuller framework for understanding not just the human person, but the world in general uh, can can be applied such that it's actually become salvific for us, and we actually are no longer addicted to a particular experience that we we think we should be having or that we we want to keep having, um, th- that sort of thing. Yeah, and and it can even be a little difficult to nail down what we're referring to as feelings because we can lump a bunch right. of things into that term. Right. So we could be talking about emotions, right? Like sadness, you know, anger, mm-hmm. happiness, right? Um, or we could be talking about, you know, the way it's used a lot in our contemporary world is, well, I feel that this is wrong. Right. Or I feel that I should have this particular gender expression, or I feel. Right. This where it's where we're talking about not talking about a a sensation or a feeling in that sense or an emotion, but we're talking about some kind of instinct or drive or connection to something. I've been hearing that a lot these days, Father. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. People don't people used to say, I think da 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 da. Now they say, I feel da 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 da. Um, And uh, the, the problem with that. Um, from the perspective of of traditional Orthodox theology, is that you're you're putting the cart before the horse, mm. in the sense that all of these things. One thing that unites, and we're talking about emotions or instincts or drives or whatever it is we're we're kind of talking about, all of those things are forces in the world that sort of act upon us. That's why we talk about the passions, right? And the fathers distinguish between blameless passions that act upon us like hunger, thirst, you know, tiredness, right? And blameworthy passions that act on us like anger, pride, lust, right? Um, And things can go from blameless to blameworthy, right? Like hunger becoming gluttony. Um, And so we, we get into trouble whenever we essentially surrender and allow ourselves to be acted upon Hmm. by these forces and drives and energies that are out there in the world. Right. So to me, the, the, the problematic version of acting based on feelings, right. Is, is that right. That we're allowing one of these drives we're surrendering to it, allowing it to guide us and control us rather than the opposite. So what does that look like? Well, St. Paul says, you know, in your anger, do not sin. So just having anger rise up, right? There are times when Christ gets angry in the scriptures. There's times where St. Paul gets angry in the scriptures. 
right? That in itself is not a sin, right? That energy being there is not a sin. But where we channel it or where we allow it to channel us can be destructive, right? We can use it for violence, for retribution, for revenge, right? Or we can see some injustice in the world. We can see something that's legitimately wrong. That can anger us and we can use that energy to set it right, right? Use that as energy to motivate us to fix it, right? Um, And so when we're taking those energies and we're taking those instincts and we're channeling them appropriately, then we're in a good spot. When they're driving us around, when we're just caught in the flow of the river, heading downstream to who knows what, that's where destruction ends up. And that's part of what asceticism is teaching us to do, right? Fasting, (laughs) this kind of thing is teaching us to channel those things rather than being driven by them. That is super helpful. Thank you, fathers, very much. And it makes a lot of sense the way you've described that. I wanted to move on to another topic. In our podcast, Coming Out of Chaos, Bryce and I have talked a lot about topics that are relevant to men. And one of the things we've discussed in prior episodes is that we as men are called to be the priests of our households. One of your most recent episodes of Lord of Spirits was called World of Priestcraft. And I have to say, I thought that was the best episode of the Lord of Spirits podcast to date. Father Stephen, in the early part of that episode, you talked about how when humanity gets separated into man and woman by God, man and woman specialize in different tasks. Man majors in the tasks of setting the world in order, and woman majors in the task of bringing life into the world. This sounds very similar to what Father Hans has been saying to us in the Antiochian men about the differences, the concrete differences between men and women that men create with their hands and women create with their bodies, for example. He has also said that men create the culture and that women fill it with life. But you took things a step further and talked about something that I think is critical for us all to understand. You said that ideally both are participating with the other in the other's work. So for a man to set the world in order in a way which will then allow it to be filled with life, that requires the participation of women. Can you talk a little more about what this model should ideally look like and also why that in our culture today, it seems like an alien concept to most people? Yeah, well, in our, in our contemporary culture, I'll start with that part first. Um, there's an incredible amount of confusion <laughs> surrounding those ideas in general. Uh, and um, that's a result of a number of things that I'm sure everyone's aware about Um, because this is all over the news all the time and it's all anyone seems to want to talk about in some political circles. Uh, But uh, part of the the core of it is that uh, we've done a 180 on our sense of what identity is uh, that now we are actually in a culture that's essentially stuck in adolescence. There's a normal stage you go through when you become like a teenager where you try to form your own identity, right? Apart from your parents and your family and, and the institutions you're part of. And in that normal phase, Uh, you define yourself by all the ways you're different from those things, 
right? I'm not like my parents because I listen to the opposite kind of music they listen to, right? And I, you know, I'm going to dye my hair the color they hate most. And I'm going to, you know, <laughs> that's, um, I'm going to, you know, do everything I can to dress differently than everyone else, to act differently than everyone else. I'm not like the other people at my church. Why am I getting right. flashbacks right now, Bryce? Yeah. <laughs> Right. And, and ideally for a healthy person who comes to maturity, you get past that, right? <laughs> you, you move past that. But our society and culture as a whole is kind of stuck there, right? It's stuck there with what makes me, me is what makes me different than everybody else, right? So I'm going to go on Tumblr and found my own gender so that <laughs> I can be a different one than every other person in the world, right? Um, and, and that leads the, the problem is when your whole identity is just formed around a whole series of negations, right? That I'm not any of these other things, then your sense of yourself just becomes like a black hole, mm. right? It's just nothing. So, uh, your sense of self just becomes, just becomes nothing, right? Cause it's just a series of not this, right? Uh, to all the possible, all the possible things. So for, for someone who's healthy and has come to maturity, your identity is formed by a series of layers, like nested layers of who you are to various other people, right? And in various community contexts, right? This is part of how we ended up here was individualism run wild in the modern West, right? Um, uh, who who I am is who I am in relation to my spouse, who I am in relation to my parents, who I am in relation to my church, who I am in relationship to my work life, my school life, right? All of those things, all nested together, right? That forms who I am, right? And so that web of relationships and maintaining it, living up to those responsibilities, right? Succeeding, at the challenges involved in those things. That's what gives me a sense of who I am. And so then my sense of self is filled with all those things, right? And I can have a sense of who I am. That's why as an adult, you know, you form a sense of who you are, right? In the community and, and in those kind of things. And so, uh, yeah, that, that's kind of now foreign to people. And so even when we're talking about the relationship between a husband and a wife, Right. What you will hear people again and again say is, you know, who they are is how they are not their spouse. Right. I want to have my hobbies, my things. These are my things. These are the things that are about me. Right. And and everything is related to, again, individuating yourself, even within the most intimate relationship you share. Mm. Right. And so I think why that line that we've talked about already today and that we talked about on the podcast strikes people as so bizarre is that it's defining, again, part of who you are, right? Your manhood or your womanhood in relation to another person, which is the opposite of how we're used to thinking about it. Yeah, I, I think that part of what's going on in this is that... Um, there tends to be a lot of fear and, and maybe this is a chicken or egg issue here 
uh, but there's a lot of fear from people about being impinged upon, right? Which is, I think, part of why that there is this sense of like this. Well, I'm not one of them. I'm not like that. I'm, you know, as, as yeah. Father Steve was just saying. Right. Um, and uh, part of that comes from the way that we understand the human person, right? Is is that we tend to, in our modern world, understand the human person as a kind of um, you know, separate, I, I, I think the term is the buffered self, right? So I'm surrounded by this sort of protective shell, right? And inside that shell is the real me. And outside that, you know, please don't crack my shell. Whereas um, the pre-modern idea of the human person is actually that the human person is much more permeable. And, and, and that's not scary. That's normal. Right. But it's scary even just to say that I, I you know, I, I feel a little twinge of fear just saying that, like, like that I'm going to lose myself by admitting that I'm permeable and that I'm not this perfect solidified thing. Right. So a lot of it comes out of, uh, as, as Father Stephen was saying, from our concept of what the human person actually is. And so we tend to then, as he said, define ourselves defensively rather than than having uh, this sense that being human is about being in communion and being part of a web of relationships. And it's, it's interesting, you know, um, a lot of times in, um, for instance, uh, you know, in, in, in my favorite author, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, when, when a character goes off by himself and spends a lot of time doing things alone, that's usually the origin of his downfall. It's because he's removed himself from that web of relationships and he wants what he wants. And he's just doing things simply separately. And, and you see this kind of isolation in, in, um, in, in the scripture as well. You know, when, when people disconnect themselves from the world that they've been raised in and want to go off on their own, then, then you know, w- watch out, right? That's, that's where there's this distortion, this downfall, and they're no longer being upheld by this web of relationships that, that is traditionally defines who they are. Wow, thank you very much. I guess just getting into relationships and how people really do want to break themselves off from those things, especially in their teenage years. I'm not that far removed from it. I'm 25. You know, eight years ago, I was 17. Like, I remember being in that atmosphere, you know, I don't want to be like my dad. This is how I'm completely different from my dad. This is how I'm completely different from the church that I was going to, you know, the people that I was associated with, the place that I grew up in, you know, I can definitely relate to that. And I remember it very vividly. Um, So going forward in that same Lord of Spirits episode, The World of Priestcraft, which I just listened to pretty recently, and my mind was completely blown. Um, first of all, great title. Second of all, just really good information in there. You both talked about the concept of the nuclear family. And you said that the nuclear family is ingrained into all of our brains as what a family is. And that some folks even think the nuclear family is a type of Christian ideal. You both made the point that the nuclear family did not exist before industrialization. And Father Andrew, you made the point that it was not even possible economically for a family to survive that way in most cases. As people in the modern world, many Christians in the West have held up the nuclear family as the ultimate ideal and must be defended at all costs. But I can't help but wonder how this concept of the nuclear family has actually limited us and sabotaged our ability to think in terms of our relationships to each other in larger communities. I don't think any of us would say that maintaining the nuclear family is a bad thing, 
but how has this idealizing of the nuclear family affected the mentality of Christianity in the West from your point of view? Wow, this is like a define the universe, give three examples kind of question. <laughs> um, Those are our favorite. <laughs> right, right. Right, <laughs> right. There's a million directions you could take this. Um, one thing that immediately comes to mind is that a lot of people tend to be left out when we emphasize the nuclear family um, in, in an almost idolatrous way, right? If someone's not in that nuclear family, then where are they? I mean, I can tell you, for instance, working for Ancient Faith Ministries, one of the things that sometimes people tell us that they're looking for, that they want to see more resources connect to, is people who aren't in nuclear families. They say, oh, there's so much for families. And, all, and then sometimes they'll say, there's so much for families with young kids, or there's so much, uh, you know, this kind of thing or that kind of thing. There's so much for married couples. What about me? I'm divorced, uh, or I'm a single parent, or I'm single and have no desire for monasticism or marriage. W what about me? Right. And it's not that there's no place in the church for these people. That's simply not true. I mean, you look at the history of Christianity, you look at the saints' lives, there's lots of places, you know, th th this is totally normal that such people can become truly holy, right? There's many, many examples. Um, but the, when we emphasize the nuclear family as being the absolute ideal and, and all of our th instincts are aimed in that direction, then we have a ministry problem, right? So that's one of the things that occurs to me. Um, the other thing is, is that so much in our society is set up to emphasize the nuclear family that we're going to have to think pretty macro in terms of ways that we can expand the nuclear family beyond where it is, right? As you said, I don't think anyone, any Christian should want to destroy the nuclear family, but but we do need to look at expanding it, right? Um but our, our architecture, our economy, our cultural, uh, you know, our, our, our pop culture, all these things are, are sort of aimed at this direction. And so then what happens then with, you know, as, we were, as, as Father Steve was mentioning earlier, the sort of adolescent rejection of everything that your parents are or whoever else is that, that instead of looking to expand the nuclear family, it's the, the, re the reaction is to transgress it, right, to break it. Right. You know, well, you can have two mommies or two daddies or you can you can have why stop it, too? You know, like like all of this idea. And instead of being an expansion of the of the family, uh, it's instead a transgression of it. It's sort of breaking it. Right. And so part of what's happened is because we have this sort of defaulting to the idea of a, of a mother and a father and their kids and sort of no one else in the house. Right. Um, that that is a brittle and not resilient model. And so then it's easy when, when uh, the rest of the culture wants to transgress it, they can transgress it by saying, well, that's too limiting. Let's, let's do something else entirely. Right. And so it's created a, a, an apologetical problem as well. You know, as we attempt to defend what it is that men and women are in from scripture, then it's harder to do that because we've adopted this very, very narrow understanding of what, what human life on a day-to-day -day basis should look like. Hmm. Right. Um, so, so I, th I think there's a, there's a bunch of problems that are sort of cascaded from this. There's no obvious or easy solution to it. I think other than pastorally to try to, it's not easy, but pastorally we should try to encourage people not to just sort of assume that 
the default is that kids grow up and move out and that's just the way that it is, or that moving away from your parents is perfectly okay and should not even give a second thought, right? That, that we should encourage extended families to live near each other if at all possible. Like I was talking about my great uncle that I never knew. That's the result of a whole set of siblings, my grandparents' generation, just simply moving away from each other and then losing touch. Mm. That's just what happened. So I've got this whole set of cousins out there whose names I do not even know, the vast majority of them, right? Um, so, you know, there's many forces in our society that are constantly pulling family, extended families apart. Um, one of the sort of weird blessings that came as a result of mass unemployment in the pandemic was that a lot of people had to band together again, extended families had to live together again a little bit more just for the sake of survival. But I don't think that we're going to tend to keep that lesson. I think we're going to, you know, once things get back to where we want them to be economically, we're just going to snap back to where we were and say, okay, now you can move out. You know, it's time that you move out, grow up, whatever. Right. Right. So yeah, it, it's a big, big issue with just so many facets to it. But I think that that within churches, uh, one of the keys is to encourage extended families to stick together as much as possible. And then also just to look for those people within churches who are not connected to any kind of family within the church, especially when we have many people who convert to Orthodox Christianity and they're not related to anybody in the church. Right. Or uh, again, they're divorced or they moved or, or whatever it might be. And to try to connect them, maybe by means of godparents or whatever else it is, to create extended family networks in, in that way as much as we can. Yeah. And um, I don't want to sit here and, and, and higgle about it, but uh, things tend to contain their own contradictions. And I think a lot of the things that Father Andrew just identified as attempts to demolish the nuclear family are actually based on the idolization of the nuclear family. Hmm. The fact that the nuclear family has been held up as the end all and be all is what has driven people who don't fit into that mold to want to be admitted to it anyway. Hmm. To redefine it in a way that they can have access to it because it's been elevated to this point of this is, this is the place. And this is the only place where you're going to find this sense of family and, and community. And if you're not allowed to do that, then you're stuck out there isolated and alone forever. Right. And when that gets drilled into our head by culture, right, it's going to then produce that, that situation. So I thought I was going to get a lot more heat going on uh, live <laughs> Christian radio and calling for the dissolution of the nuclear family. But um, I, I, th I think this is one of the places where we really benefit from a lot of the folks we have in the Orthodox Church who are from the various old countries in scare quotes, right? Um, because many of them have practiced for centuries a very different way of life. A lot of the pre-industrial constructions are still around, even though those countries have mostly industrialized. Um, a sense of extended family is still around. But what I would substitute as sort of a construct instead of the nuclear family is the village. Hmm. Right, the village. And if you have extended families living together in a village, over time it all becomes one big extended family because everybody intermarries and everybody 
right? Um, that happens a lot in the South where we are, Father. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so the, the village, I think, is a construct that can really hold the kind of connectedness we need. Because not everybody in the village is going to be married. There's going to be widows and widowers. There's going to be, you know, people, all kinds of different situations. Right. But they're still embraced by that village. The village goes to church together, right? They weren't arguing about jurisdictions. They weren't. There was a church in the village. They went to it, right? That's, you know, they didn't care whose bishop was who, right? Um, but also, this then gets to what we were we were just talking about, right? So here's just an example. One of the things that's placed on men in our culture because of the idolization of the nuclear family is your job is to provide for that family. Right. And what marks you as a good man, a good husband, and a good father is the way in which you materially provide for that little group of people. Right, yeah. Right? And that gets placed as this huge burden. It's a crushing burden for many people, especially as our economy you know, slumps into later and later capitalism, right? And that becomes more and more difficult, right? Whereas with the village as a construct, right, you have the men of the village who are working cooperatively to provide for the needs of the village. Some of them are farmers, right, and are growing food. Some of them are working trades. Some of them are, right, and working together, they all provide, right? They all provide for each other. And... This isn't just a hypothetical thing. I think that the way to move back to that is starting with our churches. Seeing our parishes as the beginnings of our village as Orthodox Christians. And so part of that is that we begin to think beyond our nuclear family and start to work together, right, as, as men and as members of the parish how are we going to all provide for each other? How are we going to work together so that everybody here has the things they need? Whether those are material needs, whether it's an older man helping a younger man get a job, right? Helping somebody get the education they need, mentoring somebody, right? Whether it's just, uh, women doing the same thing, older women and younger women, whether it's emotional needs, spiritual needs, being there for people, visiting each other, uh, you know, when someone, you know, if someone in your parish is getting evicted, someone else in the parish gives them a place to live, right? It's not that that person calls the priest and the priest tries to call agencies and, right? Yeah. That, that we're all working together. And when we start to see ourselves in that way, even though geographically we're scattered around the city or whatever, we can create a village centered around the parish and start to think more in that way. And the kids then of the parish then become the kids of the village. And so it's not like me complaining about, oh, somebody else's kid is doing this or that, right? But we're all helping these kids grow up together, right, in the faith, right? And on and on. But I, I think that's the way we have to go because the nuclear family can't support the weight that's being put upon it as the last vestige of, of community. Yeah, that's that's a beautiful response. Thank you, fathers. And and I think that really hits to the core of why especially men feel so much pressure right now uh, in providing for their families. And, and I was hoping to stay on this topic of extended families. Father Stephen, you talked about how extended families worked in the Old Testament. 
And you have said that the fathers of the extended families, the elder or the patriarch of each of those families, they're the ones who are performing the priestly functions. It is not like a separate profession, but rather it is his task as the head of the family. And you went on to say that priesthood and fatherhood in this sense are built together. Anyone who is seen as a father is also seen as a priest. And these two things are deeply connected. Fatherhood is priesthood and priesthood is fatherhood, as you have said. How are we as men to understand our responsibilities as both fathers and priests within our own families and within our church communities? Yeah, I think a big part of this is um, what we've already been talking about in terms of the flip from individualism to thinking in terms of community. And so when it comes to our spiritual life at home, uh, we've been deeply affected by post-Second Great Awakening evangelical Protestantism. I was just having a conversation about this with some parishioners. So we think the core of our prayer life is what we do when we go off by ourselves and get away from our family and, you know, go and do my prayers. That's the core, right? Whereas from a traditional Orthodox perspective, that's like, well, if that's the best you can do, right? <laughs> that ideally, right, you know, your ideal situation would be like at a monastery or at a community around a monastery where you go to church every day. And you hear the daily scripture readings read in the services of the church every day and you participate in the full life. Now, obviously, we can't all do that. Right. And so since we can't all do that. Right. Next best option is we gather in our parish when we can. And when we can't, we do those things with our family, with whoever's living with us. Right. With the father taking that leadership role. Right. So I, I think there's unfortunately a lot of Orthodox homes where. Uh, just like everybody scatters to go watch their own screens and everybody goes and eats their dinner off by themselves, they also hypothetically all go pray by themselves. And who knows if everybody's actually praying or if nobody is, right? Uh, rather than the core being we gather as a family and do our prayers, right? And that being the core of the family's spiritual life and that being led by the father in, in the family, right? When he's when he's there and able to do it. Um and then, you know, ancillary to that, right, is whatever we can't do there, we do by ourselves, right? And then, of course, you have the Jesus prayer and continual prayer, moving toward unceasing prayer that you do while you're doing your other tasks, right? But those, those moments of prayer in the morning and evening are ideally done as a whole church community. When you can't do that, it's ideally done with the extended family or the family or whoever's there together down to, hey, if you've got to do it by yourself, right? do it by yourself. But when you do it by yourself, the way we understand it is, right, you still use the, the first person plural very often in the prayers, because even if you're sitting there doing it by yourself, you yourself are joining in with, right, the rest of the prayer that's going on on earth and in heaven, right, at that time, right? So you're not really doing it by yourself. But the more we can manifest that togetherness, the better. Yeah, I think the thing that I would add to that, um, especially being the father of four children, is that it's easy. And, and even if someone just doesn't have kids, is just simply married, um, 
you know, that, that it's easy to feel like, okay, I need to wait until everyone in the house, my wife, my kids is on board with family prayer. And then when everybody's on board, then we'll do it. Right. I mean, this is a constant problem in marriage in general. Like I, I will be the, the spouse that I could really be as soon as my, my wife or my husband gets, you know, gets on board with this, right? Because we need to have this agreement. They need to show that they're on board before I can really be on board. But I, I think one of the things that a husband and father is supposed to do is to be the guy that goes first, mm. to be the one that says, okay, this is what we're going to be doing now. You know, not not by force, right? Not by force of command, but by example and by being the one who calls everyone together. Okay, we, we're, we're done with dinner. We're already gathered. So now we're going to stand in front of the icons and pray together. And a, a, good, a good father, a good husband sees what everyone is sort of capable of and, you know, shapes the home prayer, ri- prayer life in accordance with what is actually possible for everyone and shapes his expectations of everyone according to what's possible for them. So, for instance, my children are ages f- 15 to 5. I have different expectations to how the 15-year-old participates in our family prayer versus how I expect the 5-year-old to participate in family prayer. The 15-year-old is reading a number of the prayers. She's, you know, fully engaged. She's all this sort of thing. The 5-year-old, the best we can do is that he remains in the room. We don't even expect that he's going to be still. We 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 try to help him at least be quiet, but that's not an expectation that's appropriate for every five-year-old all the time, right? So so part of it is also molding you know expectations. You know, like if you have this idea that that family prayer is going to be this time when suddenly um, you know the uncreated light starts shining through your icons and everyone is experiencing the perfect stillness and the Ezekiel of of God. Then, then that is a very unrealistic expectation, uh, and frankly, it's an unrealistic expectation. Even if you're simply doing all this alone, <laughs> right? Uh, that, that's not that's not really the norm. A lot of it is simply the the experience of repentance, which is about you know a, a constant reorientation, a constant bringing things back. Just like just like it's it's all of our job to shepherd our thoughts and bring them back to God when we're in prayer. It's also the job of a father to shepherd his children and to bring them back to prayer, even if it creates an interruption, even if it's not ideal. Like my five-year-old, he doesn't do this now, but he used to, when it was time for, for evening prayer, he would say, I don't need to pray. I don't want to pray. And you know, a, a foolish parent hears that and goes, wow, there's something really wrong with my child. But a somewhat more experienced parent just goes, yeah, this is just him expressing he doesn't want to do this right now. He's not a prophet. <laughs> you know, when, when a little kid says something, that doesn't mean we have to take that as being from the Lord, right? <laughs> He's just saying he doesn't want to do it. I mean, I don't want to get and do, do my prayers all the time. Of course, it's realistic that this five-year-old is going to express the same thing, except he's going to express it in a five-year-old sort of way. Right. So to be the convener, that's really it's it's not an easy task. But I think that the biggest thing that a husband and father has to do is to be the guy who goes first. I'm going to be out here. I'm going to be doing this. And, you know, uh, he says to his wife, I would I would like for you to join me. He says to her children, I, I expect you to join me. But he, he he expresses that expectation with gentleness and not with demanding, you know, not with overpowering them just because he's bigger and louder. Right. Yeah. Thank you, fathers. Um, this reminds me a bit. I was talking to a another convert 
um, a few weeks ago, <clears throat> just about, you know, prayer life and what's that supposed to look like. And in my former confession, um, and a lot of my friends are still Protestants, you know, they have this concept of a quiet time, right? You know, I have my time alone with Jesus. I do, you know, these things alone. It's, it seems like, you know, that is a, a, part and parcel of the culture, but at the same time, it's very hard to break away from that. I mean, even the concept of family within the church, like a lot of things, especially I think for converts, you know, we're still fighting a little bit of both worlds, trying to really not necessarily fully assimilate ourselves, but we do need to embrace kind of, you know, this idea of a bigger family and not everything's to be done alone, you know, trying to be in a community as much as possible. So our next question here. So Michael and I have talked a lot about the fact that in the Orthodox Church, you and Father Stephen really helped to clarify why this is, because priesthood is what fatherhood is. It is helpful to think of priesthood being particularly related to fatherhood and masculinity, that it sort of constitutes it. Father Stephen has said that you study the Torah very much and that you will find, for example, that almost all the commandments, and when you get to issues like sexuality, all the commandments are directed to men and not women. Father Andrew, you made the point that this follows a general pattern in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament where the person who has the choice in the matter or the power or the authority, those are the people that God is talking to and usually putting limits on that person. When we think about men and women, the males of the human species are generally more physically powerful, physically dominant, which is why you get into societies all over the world far more patriarchy than matriarchy. In our culture today, the proper relationship of men and women has fallen away into a struggle for power. How does scripture help us to reject this struggle for power and move more towards an attitude of synergy and cooperation between men and women? That's a good question. Um, I, I think the, the biggest thing is that we, we all have to adopt an attitude of humility, um, which is super hard, <laughs> whether we're men or women. It's tough to be humble. Right. But but that's our starting point. Without that, you don't have Christian ethics at all without humility. So so that has to be taken as the given. Um, I, I've always wanted I, I had this funny little fantasy, which I will probably never actually act out, that at a wedding where the traditional uh, epistle reading is from Ephesians chapter five and where St. Paul says, you know, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And then he says, you know, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. I've always had this fantasy of, of deciding, you know, to preach the sermon at the wedding with simply two words, which is first to turn to the, the bride and look at her and say, submit. <laughs> and then to turn to the groom and say, die. <laughs> because... <laughs> That really is a summary of what that passage says. Um, <laughs> we have to understand it correctly, of course. If you ever do that, I'd like a copy of the video, please. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm sure it'll be on you know, TikTok or whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, but but you know, for, for, for us who are men, that is the calling, is die. Right? Because he says, it says, uh, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And that's, and how does Christ love the church? He, he loves the church by dying for the church and by giving himself completely for the church, right? He does not love the church by, uh, 
overpowering the church, mm. right? You know, eventually, of course, he is going to establish justice throughout the world. But what the church has given, who are people, the church is people who are trying to be faithful to Christ. So that they're already in. They have they have already chosen this relationship. They're they're already part of it. They're engaged in it, right? Just as a wife is is engaged in a relationship with her husband. Um. So since that's the case, then that means that. Uh, the the approach is this approach of love and of gentleness and of using that that power and authority that the husband has from God to to defend his wife and his children by means of not not by means of being necessarily a a, a big tough swole dude who you know is is being all macho right uh, now I mean obviously if if, if physical danger is threatening um, a, a, you know, a man's wife and his children, it is, a, it is very good for him to defend them. Right. But, but that the main place, most of the time that he should be defending them is through his prayer and through uh, his engagement in the spiritual world of fighting in asceticism himself to be purified, but also in asking the, the angels and the saints to defend his, his wife and his children and his home from spiritual attacks. Right, those are the real enemies of God, and those are the real enemies of mankind. Right, are these are these these dark powers? So, uh, I, I think you know one of the best pieces of advice I was ever given actually was that the best thing for a family in terms of its balance and its ability to function synergistically is for the the husband and father to stabilize himself, stabilize himself. Because whether he likes it or not, he is actually the focal point of unity and balance for the family. And so when he, when you see a family completely out of whack, it's almost a guarantee that the man who's at the middle is out of whack, hmm. that he himself is not, has not been stabilized, right? And so that's then being communicated to the rest of the family, you know, that they've, they've picked up his, his instability and, and they're acting it out in their own ways as well. And so I, I think that, you know, the, the, the main part of synergy is to do your part, right? It's not to, to expect that the other person is going to do their part. God will take care of that. God has a relationship with my wife in which he's expecting her to do what she needs to do. If I'm standing there waiting for her to, to do that, according to my standards of how that's supposed to work, then I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm. Right. And so I think one of the things that's especially for important for men, as I said earlier, is is to go first. Like what would my what would my part of an ideal marriage look like? How would I act in in this ideal marriage? Okay, what am I waiting for? Hmm. Am I waiting for her? Why am I waiting for her? That's actually my job is to go first. You know, my job is to is to do what it is I'm supposed to do. Now from her point of view, her job is to go first. She's supposed to do what she's supposed to do, you know, even if her husband is not quite doing what he's supposed to do. But my, my job is not to make sure that she does her job. My job is to do my job. So my job is to go first. My job is to be that ideal husband. My job is to be that ideal father, even if from my point of view, my wife or my children are not being ideal, right? That, that, that courage is to do the good and hard thing even when everyone else around you is not is not doing it 
right? And I think one of the big problems that we have in our world now is that we tend to wait for other people to get on board before we're willing to step in. And so there's just a lot of a lot of um, trepidation, you know, on on the part of the people that are supposed to be the ones who have some courage and say, I'm going to do what's right because it's right, not because I think it's going to instantly cure my marriage or instantly cure my my children's behavior problems. Although the beautiful thing is, again, when that husband and father stabilizes himself, it does affect his family. Their their way of living is going to change as a result. There's no way it won't. But he needs to hold the line and to to do that stuff himself. Yeah, and to to a certain extent, the whole battle of the sexes thing is uh, is perennial, right? It's one of those things that the earliest sample of human writing that we have from Sumeria is somebody complaining about how kids don't respect their elders anymore. <laughs> um, but this is a similar thing. And it go, I mean, it goes back to what we usually call the curses in Genesis three, uh, right? That's what's said to Eve, your desire will be for your, your husband and he will rule over you. Right. And Here's another sorry Calvinist, but what happens when when humanity is expelled from paradise is not that everything becomes evil and man becomes totally depraved, right? It's that man still has the same things to do, but now it's really hard. Yeah. Right? Adam still has to bring food out of the earth, but now there's going to be thorns and thistles and he's going to sweat, right? And men and women still need to work together to bring life into the world, but now it's hard. Right. Right? And... The truth is that, you know, we always want to play Animal Crossing and we need to play Elden Ring, right? Like <laughs> we need to do the really hard thing as frustrating and difficult as it is, right? It's hard to actually love people, right? Not to have sort of beneficence toward them and wish them no ill, but to actually love them is really hard, right? To, to actually have joy in your life all the time is really hard as you go through this life in this world to actually try to make peace in the world, not just be sort of above it all and peaceful, but to make peace when everyone wants you to take sides on every possible issue. Right. Like that's hard to do. Right. But doing those hard things is where you find salvation. It's where you find eternal life. Right. It's, it's where the world changes. And so the fact that it's gotten really hard for men and women to work together to accomplish things means that's exactly what we need to be doing. Thank you again, fathers. That was tremendously insightful for us. Father Stephen, there is something that you said in that World of Priestcraft episode that I think is my favorite part of any Lord of Spirits episode. And I want to quote your exact words. You said, Quote, male energy has a particular need to be channeled in certain ways, and the way in which it can be channeled positively to result in theosis, to result in becoming more like God, as part of our human nature, as it is meant to be, is priesthood. So priesthood is part and parcel of masculinity in this world because it is what masculinity needs in this world in order to find salvation. I think that is one of the most profound things I have ever heard, and it really got me thinking. That statement completely reframed the meaning of priesthood for me because I had never thought of it in terms of something that was needed, that was necessary for masculinity to find salvation. 
Can you expand on this a little bit more and explain why men should take priesthood more seriously as a path to holiness and to their own salvation and how this works? Yeah. Well, there are a lot of models we can use, right, in terms of how we are going to apply energy, right? Force or power, not in the violent sense, but in the, hopefully not, but in the, <laughs> in the broader sense, right? Um, like the force of gravity is a force, right? Um, and uh, most of them are bad, right? Most of them we've been indoctrinated with are bad. Um, they focus on... Uh, some of them focus on, for example, exploitation, right? You actually get a lot of this out of uh, the what came to be called the Puritan work ethic, right? That uh, what we should do with our masculine energy is exploit the land, exploit, right? That we have to draw value, right, out of everything, right? And and uh, it wasn't that long until we had human resource departments, right, <laughs> where we started trying to draw all the value we could out of our fellow humans. And that's right. how we approached them. Right. How is this person valuable to me? If the answer is not at all, then. Right. Um, so we can we can sort of address ourselves to the world in that way of trying to exploit the value that's out there uh, for ourselves. We can approach it from the perspective of a conqueror where our goal is to dominate everything, to control everything. Um, and we can approach other people that way, trying to control them and maximize, you know, uh, we can approach the world in terms of gratifying our own instincts and desires and, and feelings like we were talking about. Um, as, as you mentioned, you know, when you look at Leviticus 18 and, and the laws of the Torah about sexual morality, they're all aimed at uh, restricting men's desire to simply gratify their sexual desires, mm -hmm. right? Without it being involved in reproduction or the forming of a marital relationship or any of those things, right? Because uh, there's a whole list there of ways men found to just sort of gratify themselves. Uh, so those, those are all bad models and priesthood i'm arguing is the correct model right and so if for example you approach your children especially disciplining your children as a priest as what you're doing with them is what you know father andrew and i are try are trying to do with our with with parishioners when we hear confessions right um that your the spiritual father right relationship there's a reason that analogy is there right this person has through their behavior through their conduct uh separated themselves from the family from the community and most importantly from god and now i'm going to take the actions needed to restore them to bring them back to get them to repent for healing to be there right that's a very different way of approaching disciplining the, your kids than if your model is, these are my kids, this is my house, you're going to follow my rules, right? That domination perspective or the exploitation perspective. What do I need to do to get my kids to do what I want them to do, right? Which may be leave me alone or get me a beer or whatever, right? Uh, manipulation, right? 
um, if you take seriously that priestly role, that's going to be different, right? Same thing with our relationship with our spouse. Same thing with our relationship in the workplace with people who we're supervising or who work, quote unquote, underneath us, right? Um, and even those above us, right? If you, if you think about the way you should relate to your boss as the way a priest relates to his bishop, mm. <laughs> right? Um, that will transform, right, how, how that looks. And so I, I think just across the board, right, if we start to think in those terms, right, when I meet this new person who has this problem, who's asking me for something, Right. How do I relate to them as a priest? How do I try to connect, reconnect them with God? Right. How do I attempt to be the conduit for God's blessings and his healing and his mercy to them? That'll sort of transform everything. I don't really have anything to add to that. I think that's perfectly said. I've been waiting for you, Father Andrew, to um, actually Father Stephen. No, that doesn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> unless it's like you know english etymology and usually he just doesn't even go there he just it's like well i'm not an english scholar <laughs> i yeah, tried to know, stay in my lane yeah he know, i was just gonna say he knows where how to stay in his swim lane there <laughs> um my last question for you father andrew you were recently the featured guest speaker at our third annual amen lenten virtual retreat which took place at the end of march the Antiochian men chose your book, Arise, O God, the Gospel of Christ's Defeat of Demons, Sin, and Death, to read together as an organization. We had a book discussion just before your talk, and the entire retreat was truly a wonderful experience. What was the experience like for you to talk to the men in our diocese about your book, and what are your impressions of the Antiochian men as an organization? It, it was a good experience. Um, I, I found that wherever I talk about what's in the book, that many people find it uh, surprising, actually. Um, but then often there's a sense of both surprise, and especially if I'm talking to Christians, this sense of of familiarity from another angle, right? Like, I wow, I've been hearing this my whole life, but I never made those connections, mm. right? And um, in my chats with, you know, uh, briefly with with the, the Antiochian men of the Southeast Diocese, uh, that was very much the experience. I mean, the particular presentation that I gave was not simply a repeat of what was in the book because I figured everybody had read the book, right? Uh, but I, I talked particularly about the relationship of paganism and Christianity, and um, which is, again, you know, I, I find that's a place where people find stuff that's familiar and yet defamiliarized at the same time. Um, so, no, it was it was good. I, my, my general impressions of the Antiochian men I mean, it's still very, very new, relatively speaking, right? Like this, this, uh, this idea has only been around for a couple of years, and um, I, I think it's an, a fine idea. And I think one of the, the important observations that should be made within spiritual life is that men need men, just as women need women, right? That there's things that men can teach men and can be for other men that women simply cannot be for men just as men cannot do that for women, only women can do that for each other. Right. So I think that the focus is an important one. Um, and so f- what I've seen so far appears to be pretty healthy to me. Um, I've, I've not, you know, sort of been on the inside of what y'all are doing other than the interactions I've had, but it at least appears to be pretty normal and, and not weird at all. So uh, <laughs> thank God for that. Father Stephen would probably call us out. So we got him. <laughs> He's got us covered. 
I won't spill the tea. <laughs> Father Stephen, you have been so gracious to the Antiochian men over the last few years, volunteering so much of your time with our monthly men's Bible studies on Zoom, and also as a guest speaker at multiple events that we've had. On behalf of all the men in our diocese, I wanted to sincerely thank you for everything you have done and continue to do for us. Your first book, Religion of the Apostles, was the focus of our last Amen virtual retreat, and we're planning to make your second book, God is a Man of War, the focus of our Amen retreat this coming fall. Also for our listeners, Father Stephen will be talking about that book and also hosting one of our men's Bible studies in person at the Parish Life Conference this coming June in Memphis, Tennessee. Father Stephen, I remember when Bryce and I first visited your parish, you offered to lead a men's Bible study for us, and we were quick to take you up on that, and again, so grateful for all of the work you've put into them. I wanted to ask you for your perspective on the Bible studies you have done with us, and how do you think they have gone so far? And also, what are your impressions of the Antiochian men as an organization in the first three plus years of its existence? So I'm, I'm constitutionally uh, incapable of uh, watching my own material. So I haven't actually watched any of those Bible studies. That's okay. Other people are. <laughs> I, I know, but I have only hazy memories of, <laughs> of, of doing them from, from this end of the screen. Um, and uh, so, you know, the bishop has been at several of them and hasn't defrocked me. So, I mean, oh, hey, it must be going that's positive. Okay. Um, the night is still young. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm hoping they're helpful for people. Um, it's a little different than I'm trying to make it a little different than what gets broadcast as the whole council of God podcast, which is my parish Bible study in that I'm, you know, we're going through the lives of, of men in scripture and I'm trying to kind of orient it toward that audience, even though we have women sneaking in. I see every <laughs> once in a while on the, on the zoom feed. We can't keep them away, uh, but the more yeah. the merrier, right? That's, <laughs> Um, so, but yeah, so I, I, I'm hoping I'm honing it in a little more, uh, in that regard. And, and, uh, I've been enjoying doing it. I think, uh, in addition to what, you know, Father Andrew said about the Antioch men in general and the idea, since I've had more firsthand experience with it down here, um, I think, uh, one of the, the best things about it and one of the things that I'm most glad about it is there are a lot of bad ways that could have gone. <laughs> um, that's, um, there really are, right? I mean, it could, have, it could have lapsed into sort of men's movement motivational speaking. It could have lapsed into some kind of political thing. Uh, it could have, there are lots of, yeah. And uh, by the grace of God, literally it hasn't, right? That, that I think uh, at the parish level, a lot of the Antiochian men's groups are uh, doing great things and experiencing great things. Uh, I think at the diocesan level, I've seen a lot of fellowship and a lot of people getting to know each other and making connections between parishes which is increasingly hard to do in our modern world. So the fact that that's happening, I think is a, is a great thing. Uh, and a lot of support for people <laughs> and understanding for people uh, going back and forth. So uh, I think it's, I think it's wonderful how it's concretely been going <laughs> right? and that, that those sort of, those sort of pitfalls that, 
that not just Orthodox Christian men's groups, but Christian men's groups in general uh, have fallen into, uh, have not, have not befallen us. Oh, thank um, God. Glory to God for that. So due, due, due to the hard work of a lot of people, right? It's, you know, we're Orthodox, so Sinaria, right? There's God's grace and then there's our cooperation. So hard work of a lot of people, including you two. Um, definitely not least of all you two. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's my, that's my impression is that I think, I think we need to keep it up. And if we, if we keep up what we're doing, I think it will grow organically as more people get involved. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Father. Um, Father Andrew and Father Stephen, we really enjoyed this today. Thanks for taking the time to speak with both of us on our episode of Coming Out of Chaos. Um, honestly, this has been an extremely edifying conversation. And again, we really do appreciate your time. It's been an excellent recording. Thanks a lot. We would like to encourage everyone to listen to the Lord of Spirits podcast, which can be found on Ancient Faith Radio, on their app, on their website, or on any of the major podcasting platforms out there. As an avid listener to the Lord of Spirits, I can say it has been truly a life-changing experience to listen to that podcast. And I very highly recommend that to everyone listening. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you for joining us for this very special episode of Coming Out of Chaos. Please remember to check our website at antiochianmen.org to learn more about our organization. We also have many videos available that can be found on that website as well as on our Amen YouTube channel. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and any of the major podcasting platforms. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Coming Out of Chaos has also been picked up by a few other podcast platforms, including Audible and TuneIn, so be sure to follow us on the platform of your choice. We also appreciate a positive review if the platform allows you to do so. Please share this podcast with your friends and help us to spread the word about it. We want to thank everyone who has been sending us feedback on our podcast episodes. If anyone would like to send us feedback, just send an email to amendomse at gmail.com. That's A-M-E-N-D-O-M-S-E at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you if you have any questions or comments for us. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.